We're going to be going through the Psalms this summer, as I said last week, which I am uh, super excited for as I've been studying ahead a little bit and have the Psalms that we're going to be going through picked out. Just so you know, we are starting in Psalms 1. That does not mean we're going to go through 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to 150. Um, As I said last week, we will be picking different psalms, but uh, there's a reason why we are starting with Psalms 1, and I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But before we get going, if you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father God, uh, as I prayed first service, Lord, we are so thankful, Lord, at the variety of Scripture, Lord, that, that you inspired men over thousands of years, different backgrounds, rich, poor, leaders, servants, fishermen, Lord, to write your, your word, Lord, with different genres, Lord, historical narrative, didactive teaching, poetry. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that your, your word is not just inspired by you, not just life-giving, Lord, but it is a joy to read as we go through the Psalms, Lord, and read through these poetry, God, I I pray that we see the depths of the theology that's behind the poetic words, Lord, and that we are blessed, God. God, I pray this morning, um, Lord, that your gospel is heard clearly, Lord, because it's proclaimed clearly in these first two psalms. The good news of Jesus Christ, that he came, Lord, as king, died on the cross for us, Lord, paid the price that we deserve, God, I pray that's heard this morning as, as is clearly proclaimed in, in these first two psalms, Lord, and I pray that you are glorified in your son's name. Amen. A couple quick notes before we get started about these uh, first two psalms. Uh, first note is this. I believe they go together. That's why we're going through Psalms 1 and Psalms 2. Uh, there's a couple of reasons for this. I don't want to go through all the different reasonings, but look, just look with me at the first verse, Psalms 1, 1. It starts off, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Now look at the very end of Psalms 2. It says this, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You kind of see this bookends of these two Psalms, starting with blessed is the man and ending with blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I believe these psalms go together. That's the first note. The second note is this. I believe Psalms 1 and 2, as I've been studying, and there's many theologians that uh, uh, claim this, that Psalms 1 and 2 are really an introduction to all of the psalms. And that's why we're starting here. Kind of sets the stage of how to interpret the psalms as a whole. A lot of theologians say it's the gateway to the Psalms, especially Psalms 1. So we're going to start with Psalms 1 this morning, and it's actually a very simple psalm. There's a contrast in this psalm of the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. And this is a theme that we see throughout all of the psalms. Again, this is an introduction to the psalms, but it actually is a theme we see throughout all of Scripture. There's only two ways in Scripture. There's no middle ground. Jesus claimed in Luke eleven twenty three, whoever is not with me is against me. In other words, there is no almost Christian. 
There's only the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And my challenge to you this morning is to examine where are you? Where are you? So let's start looking, looking at Psalms 1, verse 1. It starts with a simple word, blessed. Blessed. It's probably actually not the best translation, blessed. There is a Hebrew word for blessed, which really talks about God having favor on someone, meaning that that person is blessed, having favored by God. This is the Hebrew word that really stresses a state of happiness. A better translation, honestly, would be happy. Happy or joy-filled. Happy or joy-filled is the man. And this is not a, a shallow happiness, not a fleeting moment of pleasure or a feeling of happiness because of the good circumstances that are around in life. It's a deep-rooted joy and happiness to the core of our being. In other words, if you're a teenager this morning, you need to hear this psalm. You need to listen. The psalm is teaching the way to joy and happiness. If you're dissatisfied with life this morning, if you're discouraged or, or depressed or unhappy, you need to hear this psalm. Look at Psalms 1.1. It starts, blessed or, or happy or joy-filled is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Right? We know this. I mean, think of a, a person that's just engulfed in sin. You don't think of someone that's joy-filled or happy. Psalm is saying the wise, right, the wise do not walk or stand or sit in the counsel of the wicked. Do you see the progression there? Walking, then standing, then sitting. In the ancient cultures, sitting really implied an a intimate relationship with someone. And I want to be clear, the psalm's not saying that we shouldn't walk, stand, or sit with sinners, right? Jesus did. He ate dinner with sinners. He sat with sinners. The psalm is saying that we don't walk, stand, or sit in agreement with sinners. Jesus never sat in agreement with sinners. He always preached faith and repentance, it didn't matter if you're a tax collector, if you're a prostitute, or a Pharisee. He always preached to turn from their sinful ways. He never sat in agreement with them and their lives. Look at what the psalm says. The one that walks not in the counsel of the wicked. In other words, listens to the counsel of the wicked. The one that does not stand in the way of sinners. In other words, sinning with sinners. The one that does not sit in the seat of scoffers, scoffing, laughing at. Who do you think sinners scoff? God. You see the progression there? It's listening to, sinning with, and then finally as you're sinning with, scoffing at God. It's a slow progression. Is that you this morning? Are you attracted to worldliness? Are you getting pulled into worldliness? The psalm is saying it would be wise to turn. 
to turn. Look at verse 1. Blessed or happy, joy-filled is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. The law here is Scripture. Right? It's God's commands to us. It's what God has asked and commanded us to do through his word. And the blessed man, the happy man, the joy-filled man is the one that delights in the law of the Lord. This is meant to stand in opposition to the counsel of the wicked in verse 1. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Delights. Actually, a delight is an important word in this verse. It's not just meditates day and night. It's not even obeys God's command or obeys God's law. It's he delights in the law. He delights in the Lord. In other words, he has a passion and love for God's law. He's not perfect. It's not saying the man that obeys God's law perfectly, but a man that, that loves God that trusts God so much so that he has a desire to obey his law, trusting that his law is good. He delights in it. And what is the result? We'll look at verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. This is an analogy, of course. The, the tree is the righteous person or the blessed person man. And the streams of water is scripture, right? God's law, God's commands. And think of streams, right? Streams or, or rivers continuously brings life-giving fresh water to trees so that they grow. I just picture this, if you've ever driven down the 99, right, in the Central Valley and seen all the farmlands, and then you see a line of trees and as you go through the line of trees, you realize, oh, there's a creek or there's a, a river that's flowing right through this line of trees. Well, that's why the trees are growing. Or I encourage you just to get a picture of what Psalms is saying, the poetic language here, the figurative language. If you Google search the Nile River and look at it from Google Earth, right, just desert. But you see this green following the river. Because fresh water is giving life to the trees and the plants and the farmland right around the river. Verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Again, this is the righteous man. This is the, the blessed man. He's planted. He's happy. He's sturdy. He's stable. He produces fruit. He does not wither. He prospers because of the stream of God's word and God's command. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This is another analogy, and it's meant to be compared. Again, this is the way of the wicked versus the way of the righteous. You have a tree that's planted firmly next to life-giving water, and then you have chaff. It's probably unfamiliar to a lot of us chaff. It's something that we don't see in our modern times. What is it? Well, in biblical days and in biblical lands, the threshing floor was usually a hard, flat surface on a hill 
well exposed to the wind. And what you would do is you would take willowing forks or shovels and throw wheat into the air so that the precious grain, which was heavy, would fall down and the light chaff that was unwanted would get blown away by the wind. It was a way of separating the chaff from the grain so that you could take the grain and the chaff would get blown away. So how are, how are the wicked like chaff? Well, in at least three ways. One, they are dead. I think chaff is dry and dead. Two, they are unprofitable or they're useless or they're the unwanted part. And three, they're easily blown away by the wind. And again, that's in contrast to the, the fruit-producing tree that is firmly planted. Look at verse 5. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. Remember verse 1 in this, because there's this contrast throughout this whole entire Psalms. Verse 1 says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners. In other words, you want to stand with sinners in verse 1? You're being warned. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will not stand in the judgment, but just like chaff, they'll be easily blown away. It's a warning. Look at verse 5 again. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That word knows is important, and it's actually an important word in all of Scripture. It's not knows as in knowledge, because God knows as in knowledge. He knows the way of the wicked, too. He knows all things, so he knows the the righteous and the wicked, if it's just knowledge. He knows the way of the righteous. It's a different type of knows. It's an intimate knows. It's It's an intimate knowledge. In other words, he takes care of. He loves It's just like Adam knew his wife. Intimate husband and wife relationship. It's just like God heard the groaning of the Israelites when they were in Egypt and knew their suffering. An intimate knowledge. It's just like God knew or or foreknows his own before the foundation of the world. Romans 8, 29. He knows the way of the righteous. Really, verse 6 kind of sums up the entire psalm. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. This is a contrast to psalms. It's a contrast of the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. The way of the righteous is characterized by a love for God and a readiness or a desire to live a godly life, which will end in happiness and joy. The way of the wicked is destruction. The way of the wicked is destruction. God offers no protection to those who are not reconciled to him. Which leads to a question. How can I be reconciled to a just and holy God If I'm a sinner, well, that gets answered in Psalms 2. Psalms 2 continues where Psalms 1 has left off. The way of the wicked, that's where Psalms 1 leaves off, and and Psalms 2 starts with the way of the wicked. Look at verse 1 in Psalms 2. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Just so you know, the, the word Lord there, if it's in your Bible, if most of your Bibles have that word capitalized, L-O-R-D. Every letter capitalized. That's because it's in replace of Yahweh. That's the name of the Lord. That's what God said his name was to Moses. My name is Yahweh. The reason that is is because the Israelites thought the word Yahweh or the name of the Lord was so holy that they didn't want to write it down. And so instead of writing it down, they would just put the consonants and and then they would put the Lord. And your modern translations have adopted that where they just put the Lord in capital letters so that you know that that's the name of the Lord, Yahweh. So it says the nations rage against Yahweh and against his anointed. The anointed was the king. And it's clear in Acts 4 that David was the one writing the Psalms, and he uses later on first person. So the anointed is David. The nations, the kings... And the kingdoms of the world rage against God and his king, his anointed. Remember what I said introducing Psalms 1 and 2. I really believe Psalms 1 and 2 is an introduction to all of the Psalms as a whole. Psalms 2, I believe, really sets the stage of how we are supposed to interpret all of the Psalms. I believe we should interpret the Psalms typologically. It's a fancy word. I've used it from the pulpit before. It's a theological word, but it's a simple concept. What is typology or typologically? Well, Psalms 2 is about God and King David. But David is a type of Christ. What's that mean? It just means David's life points to Jesus. He's a type of Christ. I want to remind you who David was as we think about this. He was the king of Israel. He was the king of God's people, right? But more than that, God promised David that one of his descendants would one day reign on his throne, and this descendant would be greater than he. It actually says in 2 Samuel 7, 12, this is what God promised David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, in other words, when you die, right, sometime in the future— I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's an amazing promise when you think about that. There's one thing that, that we know about kingdoms, right? They're not forever, Every time in, in history, in, in uh, history classes, talking about America being the most powerful nation in, in the world, that, that won't be the case forever. Right? That's the one guarantee. But, but this promise, it's to David saying, there will be a king that comes that will sit on your throne, and he will be king forever. It's through this promise that David understood that his life pointed to a descendant that would be greater than he. Actually, I want you to see this. If you would, turn to Acts 2, verse 29. Acts 2, verse 29. 
Acts 2, verse 29. This is Peter's uh, sermon on the day of Pentecost. Hundreds and hundreds of years after Psalms 2 is written, after David has been dead. This is what Peter preaches. He says this in Acts 2, 29. Brothers, and he's preaching to, to Jews from all different countries that spoke all different language, but he's freaking, speaking to Jews who would be very familiar with the Psalms and, and David. The brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. In other words, David is dead. So the promise in 2 Samuel 7.13 that says, I will establish his kingdom forever was not David but a son of David. Peter was making the point. His promise couldn't have been David. David is dead. Look at verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, that's David. He was a prophet. That's what Peter is claiming. And knowing that God had shown with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. There's two things in that verse I want you to see. First, that David was a prophet, meaning when he wrote, he wrote about a future that's coming. And second, David knew a descendant would be on his throne. In other words, David knew a future descendant would come and be on his throne forever, and as a prophet, he wrote about him. Look at verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. In other words, David knew that a greater descendant was coming. And he wrote, even when he wrote about his life, he knew it pointed to Christ and that he was a type of Christ. This is actually what Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes about this. According to the witness of the Bible, David is, as the anointed king of the chosen people of God, a prototype of Jesus Christ. What happens to him happens to him for the sake of the one who is in him and who is said to proceed from him, namely, Jesus Christ. And he is not unaware of this. David was a witness of Christ in his office, in his life, and in his words. The same words that David spoke, therefore, the future Messiah spoke through him. The prayers that David prayed were also prayed by Christ, or even better yet, Christ himself prayed them through his forerunner, David. In other words, David's life pointed to Jesus. Turn back to Psalms 2 now. David's life pointed to Jesus, and we're going to see this over and over and over again in the Psalms as David writes. So when Psalms 2 says, the nation's rage against the Lord, Yahweh, and against his anointed. The anointed is David, but David's life points to Jesus. Therefore, the anointed is Jesus. Specifically, the New Testament tells us that this is talking about the crucifixion. The nations rage. Who are the nations? Rome and Israel. They rage against Jesus. The kings and the earth, or the kings of the earth set themselves. King Herod sets himself against Jesus, and the rulers take counsel together. I mean, the kings and the rulers take counsel together. That's King Herod and Pilate. 
taking counsel together on how to destroy Jesus. All against the Lord, that's Yahweh, all against Yahweh and against his anointed. So side note, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's a title. Christ is the Greek word meaning anointed. So when Psalms 2 is quoted in the New Testament in Greek, it reads like this. The nations rage against the Lord and, his, and against his Christ. Why, do the na- why are the nations so mad? They are saying, look at verse 3. They are saying, let us burst their bonds apart, or handcuffs, and cast away their cords or chains from us. Simply, the nations rage, man rages against God and his anointed because they don't want God ruling their lives. Man's greatest sin is that man wants to be autonomous. Man hates God's law. Man hates God's rule. Man hates God's sovereignty. Therefore, he rebels against the king of the universe. I mean, think of Genesis 3. I know we go back to Genesis 3 all the time, but it's so foundational to all of Scripture. God gave one rule. And think about that. One rule. There's all these trees in this beautiful garden. You can eat of any tree you want to, but don't eat from one tree. And what did man do? He ate. You just think of why man ate, too. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, instead of saying, God telling man, saying, you have to come for me and trust me when it comes to the knowledge of good and evil, man said, no, I want to be autonomous. I want to be my own God. I will know good versus evil. I don't want your chains, God. He rebelled against God's one rule. That's the heart of all sin. We don't want God to be Lord of our lives. Man wants to be autonomous. Man wants to be his own Lord. Man wants to be his own God. I mean, think of Jesus, right? As I'm saying, this this portion of Psalms is about David, but it's pointing to Jesus, especially the crucifixion. Think of Jesus. Jesus' message was complete submission to God's rule. Read through the Gospels. It was complete submission to God's rule. When he said repent, he's saying repent from your rebellion against God's rule and start following God's rule. Submit to God's lordship. And people were offended by that. So much so, they hated the message so much that they arrested him, that they beat him, that they crucified him, that they scoffed at him. I mean, think about it. The crown of thorns, what is that? It was mocking him. How dare you claim to be king? How dare you claim to be sovereign? There was a sign above him on the cross that said, King of the Jews. It was mocking him. Scoffing that he and God claimed to have authority. They were mocking his claim to authority and thereby mocking God's authority. But who's really laughing? Look at verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
the Lord holds them in derision. That word derision just means scoffs. The, the NASB actually says the Lord scoffs at them. Again, this points back to Psalms 1.1, who says the wicked, right, the, the seat of scoffers, those that, that scoff at God, they sin and then they scoff at God as they sin. Right? The wicked laugh at God as they sin, scoffed at Jesus on the cross as they killed him. But who gets the final laugh? Verse 4, he who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. I want to be clear about this. This is poetic language. It's meant to be poetic. It's not that God sits in heaven and laughs and scoffs at the wicked being destroyed. And the Bible is very clear that God doesn't laugh, right? 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. What's his promise? Wrath. Judgment. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, God is, is patient. He's loving. He's gracious. But he is also just and wrathful towards sin and sinners. His patience will run out. And Galatians 6, 7 tells us very clearly, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Look at verse 5. Then he, this is God, will speak to them, that's the wicked, in his wrath. In other words, verse 5 is saying God's patience will run out. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. David, in other words, is on the throne. But again, David's life points to Jesus. And you really see this transition in verses 7 and 9, where this could be just about David if you read it. But for sure, it's more pointing to Jesus. Look at verse 7. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Three observations I'd like to make in verses 7 through 9. This is like I said, clearly pointing to Jesus. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Right? That's Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. Think of Jesus' baptism. This is my son, right? The father said, this is my son, who I am well pleased. Actually, Hebrews 1, 3 makes it extremely clear that this is pointing to Jesus. It says this, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's Jesus having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is, is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, then the writer of Hebrew quotes Psalms 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. 
So this is clearly pointing to Jesus. That's the first observation. The second observation is there's application to us here. Look at verse 8. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. Possession. In other words, God is promising Jesus, I will give you the nations, and the ends of the earth will be yours. Right? Jesus, you will have authority over all nations and to the ends of the earth. What's that sound like? Mike quoted it earlier. The Great Commission. Matthew, 8, or Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, he's talking to the disciples, he's talking to us, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Right? The nations have been given to me, in other words. Psalms 2 has been accomplished. And what's that mean for us? Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the ends of the age. That's our calling. To take the gospel message, the good news, not just to Tehachapi, but to the ends of the earth, to all the nations. We're called with the good news. And I want you to think about that. The gospel is good news. It's news. It's a proclamation of truth. It's a proclamation that Jesus is king. And we need to submit to him. The third observation I want to make is verse 9. It points to how it all ends. It points how it ends for the wicked. The peoples, the nations, the kings that are raging, that don't repent, that don't submit to the good news that Jesus Christ is king and he died to pay for their sins. Look at verse 9. You, and this is to Jesus, you, Jesus, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. I actually read that nations in the time of David, when they were going to war against other nations, they would write the names of the nations they're going to war with on vessels of pottery, and they would break them to celebrate what was about to happen as they go to war. For those that don't repent, this is how it all ends. For the wicked, it's God's wrath. And the Bible's clear on this. Actually, verse 9 is quoted three times in Revelation. Revelation 2.27 says this, and, and he, this is Jesus, will rule them with a rod of iron. And, with, and when uh, earthen pots are broken in pieces even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Or Revelations 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child, which this is the seed of the woman. It's, it's Jesus. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Or Revelations nineteen fifteen, From his, Jesus, from his mouth comes a sword, a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. 
So I know it's not popular today to talk about the wrath of God in our culture. If you're a guest this morning, you may have never have heard a pastor ever mention the wrath of God, and I'm sorry for that, because the Bible definitely talks about it. It's a scary thing. And we as Christians need to go out and warn the nations of the wrath that is coming. Psalms 1 was a contrast of the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. There is only two ways. And the way of the wicked ends in destruction. Look at verse 10. Sorry, I have a heavy heart this morning. Look at verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Psalms 2 is a warning. It's a warning. Look at verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. It's a warning to the wicked. It's a warning to those that want to be autonomous, to those that don't want to follow God, that don't want to put their faith in the Lord. It's a warning, and and here's the warning. You're warned that wrath is coming. Therefore, look at verse 12. Kiss the Son. What is that? It's interesting. But we don't live in America with a monarch, so this is probably foreign to us. But one of the ways in this day and age you would pay homage or show loyal submission to the king, or if you're being conquered by another king and you show submission to the king you've been conquered by, one of the ways of showing that is by kissing the king. Verse 12 says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. In other words, those that don't submit to Jesus in faith and obedience, that's the Son, right? This is pointing to Jesus. His wrath is quickly kindled. Psalms 1 and Psalms 2 make it very clear that the way of the wicked is destruction, it's ruin, it's disaster, it's wrath, it's eternity in hell. But here is the good news. Right Here is the gospel. Look at the end of verse 12. Blessed. There's that word again. Happy or joy-filled are all who take refuge in him. This is the way of the righteous. It's not by being perfect or trying to obey all the rules. It's simply by putting your faith, taking refuge in the Son, trusting in Him, falling deeply in love with Him. Put your faith in Him and you will be saved. The way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked. And I want to be clear this morning, there's only two ways. There's only two ways. Who are the wicked? The man that wants to be autonomous, who rebels against God, doesn't want God telling him what to do, 
who wants to be the king of his own life. Is that you this morning? Is God just kind of an afterthought? Who are the righteous? Who are the the blessed? Those that will be happy and joy-filled for eternity? Those that take refuge in him. That put their faith in him. Jesus, the God of the universe, right, who came as a human and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. And he didn't just die. He raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will come back. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, don't leave this place until you do. We're not promised tomorrow. And Psalms 1 and 2 are a warning. Yet they're also joy-filled, good news that we do have hope in the Son. Put your faith in him this morning. And for us, right, that have put our faith in him, let's celebrate this morning for what Christ has done for us. If, if you want to talk more about this, if you don't know who Jesus is and you want to put your faith in him for the first time, all you have to do is cry out to God in your heart. He can hear you in your thoughts. Put your faith in him. But I'd love to talk with you. Come talk with me after this service. This is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray through Psalms 1, and we're going to sing a song to end the service this morning. If you would, pray with me. Psalms 1. Blessed is the man, Lord. God, I pray for happiness and joy, Lord. Those aren't bad things, Lord. You command us to be joy-filled because the the way of being joy-filled is a relationship with you, Lord. Blessed, joy-filled, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. God, keep us from worldliness because it will destroy us. Keep us from sin, Lord. Because it will end in destruction, Lord. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night, Lord. May that be true about Country Oaks and all of us that are in this room, Lord. That we delight in the law of the Lord because we know the law comes from you. And we trust you and we love you. And we know what you command us is what is good for us, Lord. And when life is confusing and hard and we don't know what's going on, Lord, we know you are sovereign. Help us to trust in that, Lord. Say, this is beyond us. The secret things belong to you, God. I just trust you. I take refuge in you, Lord. God, may that be true of us this morning. In your son's name, amen.